Welcome to Another World Audiobooks. If you're confused as to why there's an episode today, it's because we have the generosity of Nikki Wagner to thank for a very special bonus full week of content here as we go through The Secret Garden. If you didn't listen to Sunday's episode, I had uh, an interview with Nikki and uh, there was the first couple chapters of the book. So go back, listen to that and uh, get all caught up on what's going on. If you're all confused and wondering where Emma went, never fear, she will be back regularly scheduled uh, episode on this coming Sunday. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, all this crazy bonus content is like Christmas came early. Without further ado, I give you the next chapters of The Secret Garden, narrated by special guest narrator, Nikki Wagner. Chapter five, the cry in the corridor at first, each day which passed by for Mary Lennox was exactly like the others. Every morning she awoke in her tapestried room and found Martha kneeling upon the hearth building her fire. Every morning she ate her breakfast in the nursery, which had nothing amusing in it, and after each breakfast she gazed out of the window across the huge moor which seemed to spread out on all sides and climb up to the sky and after she had stared for a while, she realized that if she did not go out, she would have to stay in and do nothing. And so she went out. She did not know that this was the best thing she could have done, and she did not know that when she began to walk quickly or even run along the paths and down the avenue, she was stirring her slow blood and making herself stronger by fighting with the wind which swept down from the moor. She ran only to make herself warm, and she hated the wind which rushed at her face and roared and held her back, as if it were some giant she could not see. But the big breaths of rough fresh air blown over the heather filled her lungs with something which was good for her whole thin body, and whipped some red colour into her cheeks, and brightened her dull eyes when she did not know anything about it but after a few days spent almost entirely out of doors she wakened one morning knowing what it was to be hungry and when she sat down to her breakfast she did not glance disdainfully at her porridge and push it away but took up her spoon and began to eat it and went on eating it until her bowl was empty thou got on well enough with that this morning didn't thou said martha it tastes nice to-day said mary feeling a little surprised herself. "'It's the air the more that's given its stomach for that victuals,' answered Martha. "'It's lucky for thee that that's got victuals as well as appetite. There's been twelve and I cottages at the stomach and nothing to put in it. You go on playing you out of doors every day and you'll get some flesh on your bones and you won't be so yellow.' "'I don't play,' said Mary. "'I have nothing to play with.' "'Nothing to play with?' exclaimed Martha. Our children plays with sticks and stones. They just runs about and shouts and looks at things. Mary did not shout, but she looked at things. There was nothing else to do. She walked round and round the gardens and wandered about the path in the park. Sometimes she looked for Ben Weatherstaff, but though several times she saw him at work, he was too busy to look at her, or was too surly. Once, when she was walking toward him, he picked up his spade and turned away, as if he did it on purpose. One place she went to oftener than any other. It was the long walk outside the gardens with the walls round them. 
There were bare flower beds on either side of it, and against the walls the ivy grew thickly. There was one part of the wall where the creeping dark green leaves were more bushy than elsewhere. It seemed as if for a long time that part had been neglected. The rest of it had been clipped and made to look neat, but at the lower end of the walk it had not been trimmed at all. A few days after she had talked to Ben Weatherstaff, Mary stopped to notice this and wondered why it was so. She had just paused and was looking up at the long spray of ivy swinging in the wind when she saw a gleam of scarlet and heard a brilliant chirp. And there, on the top of the wall, forward perched Ben Weatherstaff's robin redbreast, tilting forward to look at her with his small head on one side. Oh, she cried out. Is it you? Is it you? And it did not seem at all queer to her that she spoke to him as if she was sure that he would understand and answer her. He did answer. He twittered and chirped and hopped along the wall as if he were telling her all sorts of things. It seemed to Mistress Mary as if she understood him too, though he was not speaking in words. It was as if he said, Good morning. Isn't the wind nice? Isn't the sun nice? Isn't everything nice? Let us both chirp and hop and twitter. Come on. Come on. Mary began to laugh, and as he hopped and took little flights along the wall, she ran after him. Poor little thin, sallow, ugly Mary. She actually looked almost pretty for a moment. I like you. I like you, she cried out pattering down the walk, and she chirped and tried to whistle, which last she did not know how to do in the least. But the robin seemed to be quite satisfied, and chirped and whistled back at her. At last he spread his wings and made a darting flight to the top of a tree, where he perched and sang loudly. That reminded Mary of the first time she had seen him. He had been swinging on a treetop then, and she had been standing in the orchard. Now she was on the other side of the orchard and standing in the path outside a wall, much lower down, and there was the same tree inside. It's in the garden no one can go into, she said to herself. It's the garden without a door. He lives in there. How I wish I could see what it is like. She ran up the walk to the green door she had entered the first morning. Then she ran down the path through the other door and then into the orchard. And when she stood and looked up, there was the tree on the other side of the wall, and there was the robin just finishing his song and beginning to preen his feathers with his beak. It is the garden, she said. I am sure it is. She walked round and looked closely at that side of the orchard wall, but she only found what she found before, that there was no door in it. Then she ran through the kitchen gardens again and out into the walk outside the long ivy-covered wall, and she walked to the end of it and looked at it, but there was no door. And then she walked to the other end, looking again, but there was no door. It's very queer, she said. Ben Weatherstaff said there was no door, and there is no door. But there must have been one ten years ago, because Mr. Craven buried the key. This gave her so much to think of that she began to be quite interested and felt that she was not sorry that she had come to Misselthwaite Manor. In India she had always felt hot and too languid to care much about anything. 
The fact was that the fresh wind from the moor had begun to blow the cobwebs out of her young brain and to waken her up a little. She stayed out of doors nearly all day, and when she sat down to her supper at night, she felt hungry and drowsy and comfortable. She did not feel cross when Martha chattered away. She felt as if she rather liked to hear her, and at last she thought she would ask her a question. She asked it after she had finished her supper and had sat down in the hearthrug before the fire. Why did Mr. Craven hate the garden? she said. She had made Martha stay with her, and Martha had not objected at all. She was very young and used to a crowded cottage full of brothers and sisters, and she found it dull in the great servant hall downstairs, where the footmen and other housemaids made fun of her Yorkshire speech and looked upon her as a common little thing and sat and whispered among themselves. Martha liked to talk, and a strange child who had lived in India and been waited upon by blacks was novelty enough to attract her. She sat down on the hearth herself without waiting to be asked. Art thou thinking about that garden yet? she said. I knew thou were. Thou was just the way with me when I first heard about it. Why did he hate it? Mary persisted. Martha tucked her feet under her and made herself quite comfortable. Listen to that wind wuthering round the house, she said. You could barely stand up on the moor if you was out on it tonight. Mary did not know what wuthering meant until she listened and then she understood it must mean that hollow shuddering sort of roar which rushed round and round the house is that the giant no one can see were buffeting it and beating at the walls and windows to try to break in but one knew he could not get in and somehow it made one feel very safe and warm inside a room with a red coal fire but why did he hate it so she asked after she had listened she intended to know if Martha did. Then Martha gave up her store of knowledge. Mand, she said, Mrs. Medlock that is not to be talked about. There's lots of things in this place that's not to be talked over. Thou's Mr. Craven's orders. His troubles are non-servant's business, they says. But for the garden he wouldn't be like it is. It was Mrs. Craven's garden that she had made when first they were married, and she just loved it and they used to tend to the flowers themselves, and none of the gardeners was ever let to go in. Him and I used to go in and shut the door, and stay there hours and hours, reading and talking. And she was just a bit of a girl, and there was an old tree with a branch bent like a seat on it, and she made roses grow over it, and she used to sit there. But one day, when she was sitting there, the branch broke, and she fell on the ground, and was hurt so bad the next day she died. The doctors thought he'd go out of his mind and die too. That's why he hates it. No one's never gone in since, and he won't let anyone talk about it. Mary did not ask any more questions. She looked at the red fire and listened to the wind, wuthering. It seemed to be wuthering louder than ever. At that moment, a very good thing was happening to her. Four good things had happened to her, in fact, since she came to Misslewake Manor. She had felt as if she had understood a robin, and that he had understood her. She had run in the wind until her blood had grown warm. She had been healthily hungry for the first time in her life, and she had found out what it was to be sorry for someone. 
but as she was listening to the wind, she began to listen to something else. She did not know what it was, because at first she could scarcely distinguish it from the wind itself. It was a curious sound. It seemed almost as if a child were crying somewhere. Sometimes the wind sounded rather like a child crying, but presently Mistress Mary felt quite sure this sound was inside the house, not outside it. It was far away, but it was inside. She turned round and looked at Martha. Do you hear anyone crying? she said. Martha suddenly looked confused. No, she answered. It's the wind. Sometimes it sounds like as if someone was lost on the moor and wailing. It's got all sorts of sounds. But listen, said Mary. It's in the house, down one of those long corridors. And at that very moment, a door must have been opened somewhere downstairs, for a great rushing draught blew along the passage, and the door of the room they sat in was blown open with a crash. And as they both jumped to their feet, the light was blown out, and the crying sound was swept down the far corridor, so that it was to be heard more plainly than ever. There, said Mary, I told you so. It is someone crying, and it isn't a grown-up person. Martha ran and shut the door and turned the key, but before she did it, they both heard the sound of a door in some far passage shutting with a bang, and then... Everything was quiet, for even the wind ceased wuthering for a few moments. It was the wind, said Martha stubbornly, and if it wasn't, it was little Betty Barsworth, the scullery maid. She's had the toothache all day. But something troubled and awkward in her manner made Mistress Mary stare very hard at her. She did not believe she was speaking the truth. Chapter 6 There was someone crying. There was! The next day, the rain poured down in torrents again, and when Mary looked out of her window, the moor was almost hidden by grey mist and cloud. There could be no going out today. What do you do in your cottage when it rains like this? she asked Martha. Try to keep from under each other's feet, mostly, Martha answered. Eh, there does seem to be a lot of us then. Mother's a good-tempered woman, but she gets fair more of that. The biggest ones goes out in the cowshed and plays there. Dick and he doesn't mind the wet. He goes out just the same as if the sun was shining. He says he sees things on rainy days as isn't sure when it's fair weather. He once found a little fox cub half drowned in its hole, and he brought it home in the bosom of his shirt to keep it warm. Its mother had been killed nearby, and the hole was swum up and the rest of the little was dead. He's got it at home now. He found a half-drowned young crow another time, and he brought it home too, and tamed it. It's named Soot because it's so black, and it hops and flies about with him everywhere. The time had come when Mary had forgotten to resent Martha's familiar talk. She had even begun to find it interesting, and to be sorry when she stopped or went away. The stories she had been told by her Arya when she lived in India had been quite unlike those Martha had to tell about the moorland cottage, which held fourteen people who lived in four little rooms and never had quite enough to eat. The children seemed to tumble about and amuse themselves like a litter of rough, good-natured collie puppies. 
Mary was most attracted by the mother, and Dickon. When Martha told stories of what mother said or did, they always sounded comfortable. If I had a raven or a fox cub, I could play with it, said Mary. But I have nothing. Martha looked perplexed. Can thou knit? she asked. No, answered Mary. Can thou sew? No. Can thou read? Yes. Then why doesn't thou read something or learn a bit of spelling? That's old enough to be learning a book a good bit now. I haven't any books, said Mary. Those I had were left in India. That's a pity, said Martha. If Mrs. Medlock had let thee go into the library, there's thousands of books there. Mary did not ask where the library was, because she was suddenly inspired by a new idea. She made up her mind to go and find it herself. She was not troubled about Mrs. Medlock. Mrs. Medlock seems always to be in her comfortable housekeeper's sitting room downstairs. In this queer place, one scarcely ever saw anyone at all. In fact, there was no one to see but the servants, and when their master was away, they lived a luxurious life below stairs, where there was a huge kitchen hung about with shining brass and pewter, and a large servants' hall where there were four or five abundant meals eaten every day, and where a great deal of lively romping went on when Mrs. Medlock was out of the way. Mary's meals were served regularly, and Martha waited on her. But no one troubled themselves about her in the least. Mrs. Medlock came and looked at her every day or two, but no one inquired what she did or told her what to do. She supposed that perhaps this was the English way of treating children. In India, she had always been attended by her ayah, who had followed her about and waited on her hand and foot. She had often been tired of her company. Now she was followed by nobody. And was learning to dress herself because Martha looked as though she thought she was silly and stupid when she wanted to have things handed to her and put on. Arthur not got good sense, she said once when Mary had stood waiting for her to put on her gloves for her. Ah, Susan Ann is twice as sharp as they, and she's only four year old. Sometimes that looks very soft in the head. Mary had worn her contrary scowl for an hour after that. But it made her think several entirely new things. She stood at the window for about ten minutes this morning after Martha had swept up the hearth for the last time and gone downstairs. She was thinking over the new idea which had come to her when she heard of the library. She did not care very much about the library itself because she had read very few books, but to hear of it brought back to her mind the hundred rooms with closed doors. She wondered if they were all really locked, and what she would find if she could go into any of them. Were there a hundred really? Why shouldn't she go and see how many doors she could count? It would be something to do on this morning when she could not go out. She had never been taught to ask permission to do things, and she knew nothing at all about authority. So she would not have thought it necessary to ask Mrs. Medlock if she might walk about the house, even if she had seen her. She opened the door of the room and went into the corridor, and then she began her wanderings. It was a long corridor, and it branched into other corridors, and it led her up short flights of steps which mounted to others again. There were doors and doors, and there were pictures on the walls. Sometimes there were pictures of dark, curious landscapes, 
but oftenest they were portraits of men and women in queer, grand costumes made of satin and velvet. She found herself in one long gallery whose walls were covered with these portraits. She had never thought that there could be so many in any house. She walked slowly down this place and stared at the faces which also seemed to stare at her. She felt as if they were wondering what a little girl from India was doing in their house. Some were pictures of children. Little girls in thick satin frocks which reached to their feet and stood out about them. And boys with puffed sleeves and lace collars and long hair, or with big ruffs round their necks. She always stopped to look at the children and wonder what their names were, and where they had gone, and why they wore such odd clothes. There was a stiff, plain little girl rather like herself. She wore a green brocade dress and held a green parrot on her finger. Her eyes had a sharp, curious look. Where do you live now? said Mary aloud to her. I wish you were here. Surely no other little girl ever spent such a queer morning. It seemed as if there was no one in all the huge rambling house but her own small self, wandering about upstairs and down, through narrow passages and wide ones, where it seemed to her that no one but herself had ever walked. Since so many rooms had been built, people must have lived in them. But it all seemed so empty that she could not quite believe it true. It was not until she climbed to the second floor that she thought of turning the handle of a door. All the doors were shut, as Mrs. Medlock had said they were. But at last she put her hand on the handle of one of them and turned it. She was almost frightened for a moment, and she felt that it turned without difficulty, and that when she pushed upon the door itself, it slowly and heavily opened. It was a massive door and opened into a big bedroom. There were embroidered hangings on the wall, and inlaid furniture such as she had seen in India stood about the room. A broad window with leaded panes looked out upon the moor, and over the mantel was another portrait of the stiff, plain little girl, which seemed to stare at her more curiously than ever. Perhaps she slept here once," said Mary. She stares at me so that she makes me feel queer. After that, she opened more doors and more. She saw so many rooms that she became quite tired and began to think that there must be a hundred, though she had not counted them. In all of them, there were old pictures or old tapestries with strange scenes worked on them. There were curious pieces of furniture and curious ornaments in nearly all of them. In one room, which looked like a lady's sitting room, the hangings were all embroidered velvet, and in a cabinet were about a hundred little elephants made of ivory. They were of different sizes, and some had them as hoots or palanquins on their backs. Some were much bigger than the others, and some were so tiny that they seemed only babies. Mary had seen carved ivory in India, and she knew all about elephants. She opened the door of the cabinet and stood on a footstool and played with these for quite a long time. When she got tired, she set the elephants in order and shut the door of the cabinet. In all her wanderings through the long corridors and the empty rooms, in all her wanderings through the long corridors and the empty rooms, she had seen nothing alive, but in this room she saw something. 
Just after she had closed the cabinet door, she heard a tiny rustling sound. It made her jump and look around at the sofa by the fireplace, from which it seemed to come. In the corner of the sofa there was a cushion, and in the velvet which covered it there was a hole, and out of the hole peeped a tiny head with a pair of frightened eyes in it. Mary crept softly across the room to look. The bright eyes belonged to a little grey mouse, and the mouse had eaten a hole in the cushion and made a comfortable nest there. Six baby mice were cuddled up asleep near her. If there was no one else alive in a hundred rooms, there were seven mice who did not look lonely at all. If they wouldn't be so frightened, I would take them back with me, said Mary. She had wandered about long enough to feel too tired to wander any farther, and she turned back. Two or three times she lost her way by turning down the long corridor, and was obliged to ramble up and down until she found the right one. But at last she reached her own floor again, though she was some distance from her own room and did not know exactly where she was. I believe I have taken a wrong turning again, she said, standing still at what seemed the end of a short passage with tapestry on the wall. I don't know which way to go. How still everything is! It was while she was standing here, and just after she had said this, that the stillness was broken by a sound. It was another cry, but not quite like the one she had heard last night. It was only a short one, a fretful childish whine muffled by passing through walls. It's nearer than it was, said Mary, her heart beating rather faster, and it is crying. She put her hand accidentally upon the tapestry near her, and then sprang back, feeling quite startled. The tapestry was the covering of a door, which fell open, and showed her that there was another part of the corridor behind it, and Mrs. Medlock was coming up with her bunch of keys in her hand, and a very cross look on her face. "'What are you doing here?' she said, and she took Mary by the arm and pulled her away. "'What did I tell you?' I turned round the wrong corner, explained Mary. I did not know which way to go, and I heard someone crying. She quite hated Mrs. Medlock at the moment, but she hated her more the next. You didn't hear anything of the sort, said the housekeeper. You come along back to your own nursery, or I'll box your ears. And she took her by the arm, and half pushed, half pulled her up one passage, and down another, until she pushed her in at the door of her own room. Now, she said, you stay where you're told to stay, or you'll find yourself locked up. The master had better get you a governess, same as he said he would. You're one that needs someone to look sharp after you. I've got enough to do. She went out of the room and slammed the door after her, and Mary went and sat on the hearth rug, pale with rage. She did not cry, but ground her teeth. There was someone crying. There was. There was, she said to herself. She had heard it twice now, and sometime she would find out. She had found out a great deal this morning. She felt as if she had been on a long journey, and at any rate, she had had something to amuse her all the time, and she had played with the ivory elephants, and had seen the grey mouse and its babies in their nest in the velvet cushion. Chapter 7 The Key to the Garden 
Two days after this, when Mary opened her eyes, she sat upright in bed immediately and called to Martha. Look at the moor! Look at the moor! The rainstorm had ended and the grey mist and clouds had been swept away in the night by the wind. The wind itself had ceased and a brilliant deep blue sky arched high over the moorland. Never, never had Mary dreamed of a sky so blue. In India, skies were hot and blazing. This was of a deep cool blue, which almost seemed to sparkle like the waters of some lovely bottomless lake, and here and there, high, high in the arched blueness, floated small clouds of snow-white fleece. The far-reaching world of the moor itself looked softly blue instead of gloomy purple-black or awful dreary grey. Aye, said Martha with a cheerful grin, the storm's over for a bit. It does like this at this time of year. It goes off all night like it was pretending it had never been here and never meant to come again. That's because the springtime's on its way. It's a long way off yet, but it's common. I thought perhaps it always rained or looked dark in England, Mary said. Ah, no, said Martha, sitting up on her heels among her black lead brushes. Now to the salt. What does that mean? asked Mary seriously. In India, the natives spoke different dialects, which only a few people understood, so she was not surprised when Martha used words she did not know. Martha laughed as she had done the first morning. There now, she said. I've talked broad Yorkshire again, like Mrs. Medlock said I mustn't. Now to the salt means nothing of the sort, slowly and carefully, but it takes so long to say it. Yorkshire's the sunniest place on earth when it is sunny. I told thee that that locked and more after a bit. Just you wait till you see the gold-coloured gorse blossoms and the blossoms on the broom and the heather flowing all purple bells and hundreds of butterflies fluttering and bees humming and skylarks soaring up and singing. You'll want to get out on it at sunrise and live out on it all day like Dickon does. Could I ever get there? asked Mary wistfully, looking through her window at the far-off blue. It was so new and big and wonderful and such a heavenly colour. I don't know, answered Martha. Thou's never used thy legs since that was born, it seems to me. Thou couldn't walk five mile. It's five mile to our cottage. I should like to see your cottage. Martha stared at her a moment curiously before she took up her polishing brush and began to rub the grate again. She was thinking that the small plain face did not look quite as sour at this moment as it had done the first morning she saw it. It looked just a trifle like little Susan Ann's when she wanted something very much. I'll ask my mother about it, she said. She is one of them that nearly always is a way to do things. It's my day out today, and I'm going home. Eh, <laughs> I am glad. Mrs. Midlock thinks a lot of mother. Perhaps she could talk to her. I like your mother, said Mary. I should think Belle did, agreed Martha, polishing away. I've never seen her, said Mary. No, thou hasn't, replied Martha. She stood up on her heels again and rubbed the end of her nose with the back of her hand, as if puzzled for a moment. But she ended quite positively. Well, 
She's that sensible and hard-walking and good-natured and clear that no one could help liking her, whether they'd seen her or not. When I'm going home to her on my day out, I just jump for joy when I'm crossing the moor. I'm like Dickon, added Mary, and I've never seen him. Well, said Martha stoutly, I've told thee that very birds likes him and the rabbits and wild sheep and ponies and the foxes themselves. I wonder, staring at her reflectively, what Dickon would think of thee. He wouldn't like me, said Mary in a stiff, cold little way. No one does. Martha looked reflective again. How dost thou like thyself? she inquired, really quite as if she were curious to know. Mary hesitated a moment and thought it over. Not at all, really, she answered. But I never thought of that before. Martha grinned a little as if it's some homely recollection. Mother said that to me once, she said. She was at her wash tub and I was in a bad temper and talking ill of folk. And she runs round on me and says, Thou young vixen, da, there thou stands saying that thou doesn't like this one and thou doesn't like that one. How does thine like thyself? It made me laugh and it brought me to my senses a minute. She went away in high spirits as soon as she had given Mary her breakfast. She was going to walk five miles across the moor to the cottage and she was going to help her mother with the washing and do the week's baking and enjoy herself thoroughly. Mary felt lonelier than ever when she knew she was no longer in the house. She went out into the garden as quickly as possible, and the first thing she did was to run round and round the fountain flower gardens ten times. She counted the times carefully, and when she had finished, she felt in better spirits. The sunshine made the whole place look different. The high, deep blue sky arched over Mistlethwaite as well as over the moor and she kept lifting her face and looking up into it, trying to imagine what it would be like to lie down on one of the little snow-white clouds and float about. She went into the first kitchen garden and found Ben Weatherstaff working there with two other gardeners. The change in the weather seemed to have done him good. He spoke to her of his own accord. Spring John's coming, he said. Can all that smell it? Mary sniffed and thought she could. I smell something nice and fresh and damp, she said. That's the good French earth, he answered, digging away. It's in a good humour making ready to grow things. It's glad when planting time comes. It's dull in the winter when it's got naught to do. In the flower gardens out there, things will be stirring down below in the dark. The sun's warming them. You'll see bits of green spikes sticking out of the black earth after a bit. What will they be? asked Mary. Crocuses and snow traps and duffy down dillies. Hast thou never seen them? No. Everything is hot and wet and green after the rains in India, said Mary. And I think things grow up in a night. These won't grow up in a night, said Weatherstaff. Thou'll have to wait for them. They'll poke up a bit higher here, and push out a spike more there, and uncurl a leaf this day and another that. You watch em. I am going to, answered Mary. Very soon she heard the soft rustling flight of wings again, and she knew at once that the robin had come again.
He was very pert and lively, and hopped about so close to her feet, and put his head on one side, and looked at her so slyly that she asked Ben Weatherstaff a question. Do you think he remembers me? she said. Remembers thee? said Weatherstaff indignantly. He knows every cabbage stump in the gardens, let alone the people. He's never seen a little wench here before, and he's bent on finding out all about thee. There's no need to try to hide anything from him. Are things stirring down below in the dark in that garden where he lives? Mary inquired. What garden? grunted Weatherstaff, becoming surly again. The one where the old rose trees are. She could not help asking, because she wanted so much to know. Are all the flowers dead, or do some of them come again in the summer? Are there ever any roses? Ask King, said Ben Weatherstaff, hunching his shoulders toward the robin. He's the only one as knows. No one else has been inside it for ten years. Ten years was a long time, Mary thought. She had been born ten years ago. She walked away, slowly thinking. She had begun to like the garden, just as she had begun to like the robin and Dickon and Martha's mother. She was beginning to like Martha too. That seemed a good many people to like, when you were not used to liking. She thought of the robin as one of the people. She went to her walk outside the long, ivy-covered wall over which she could see the treetops, and the second time she walked up and down, the most interesting and exciting thing happened to her. It was all through Ben Weatherstaff's robin. She heard a chirp and a twitter, and when she looked at the bare flower bed at her left side, there he was, hopping about and pretending to peck things out of the earth to persuade her that he had not followed her. But she knew he had followed her, and the surprise so filled her with delight that she almost trembled a little. You do remember me, she cried out. You do! You are prettier than anything else in the world! She chirped and talked and coaxed, and he hopped and flitted his tail and twittered. It was as if he were talking. His red waistcoat was like satin, and he puffed his tiny breast out, and was so fine and so grand and so pretty that it was really as if he were showing her how important and like a human person a robin could be. Mistress Mary forgot that she had ever been contrary in her life when he allowed her to draw closer and closer to him, and bandang and talk and try to make something like robin sounds. Oh, to think that he should actually let her come as near to him as that. He knew nothing in the world would make her put out her hand toward him or startle him in the least tiniest way. He knew it because he was a real person, only nicer than any other person in the world. She was so happy that she scarcely dared to breathe. The flower bed was not quite bare. It was bare of flowers because the perennial plants had been cut down for their winter rest. But there were tall shrubs and low ones which grew together at the back of the bed, and as the robin hopped about under them, she saw him hop over a small pile of freshly turned up earth. He stopped on it to look for a worm. The earth had been turned up because a dog had been trying to dig up a mole, and he had scratched quite a deep hole. Mary looked at it, not really knowing why the hole was there, and as she looked, she saw something almost buried in the newly turned soil. 
It was something like a ring of rusty iron or brass, and when the robin flew up into a tree nearby, she put out her hand and picked the ring up. It was more than a ring, however. It was an old key which looked as if it had been buried a long time. Mistress Mary stood up and looked at it with an almost frightened face as it hung from her finger. Perhaps it has been buried for ten years, she said in a whisper. Perhaps it is the key to the garden. Chapter Eight: The Robin Who Showed the Way. She looked at the key quite a long time. She turned it over and over and thought about it. As I have said before, she was not a child who had been trained to ask permission or consult her elders about things. All she thought about the key was that if it was the key to the closed garden, and she could find out where the door was, she could perhaps open it and see what was inside the walls and what had happened to the old rose trees. It was because it had been shut up so long that she wanted to see it. It seemed as if it must be different from other places, and that something strange must have happened to it during ten years. Besides that, if she liked it, she could go into it every day and shut the door behind her, and she could make up some play of her own and play it quite alone, because nobody would ever know where she was, but would think that the door was still locked and the key buried in the earth. The thought of that pleased her very much. Living as it were, all by herself in a house with a hundred mysteriously closed rooms, and having nothing whatever to do to amuse herself, had set her inactive brain to working, and was actually awakening her imagination. There was no doubt that the fresh, strong, pure air from the moor had a great deal to do with it. Just as it had given her an appetite, and fighting with the wind had stirred her blood, so the same things had stirred her mind. In India, she had always been too hot and languid and weak to care much about anything, but in this place, she was beginning to care and to want to do new things. Already, she felt less contrary, though she did not know why. She put the key in her pocket and walked up and down her walk. No one but herself ever seemed to come there, so she could walk slowly and look at the wall, or rather, at the ivy growing on it. The ivy was a baffling thing. Howsoever carefully she looked, she could see nothing but thickly growing, glossy, dark green leaves. She was very much disappointed. Something of her contrariness came back to her as she paced the walk and looked over it at the tree tops inside. It seemed so silly, she said to herself, to be near it and not be able to get in. She took the key in her pocket when she went back to the house, and she made up her mind that she could always carry it with her when she went out, so that if she ever found the hidden door, she would be ready. Mrs. Medlock had allowed Martha to sleep all night at the cottage, but she was back at her work in the morning with cheeks redder than ever and in the best of spirits. I got up at four o'clock," she said. "Eh, it was pretty on the moor, and the birds getting up, and the rabbits scampering about, and the sun shining. I didn't walk all the way. A man gave me a ride in his cart, and I did enjoy myself." She was full of stories of the delights of her day out. Her mother had been glad to see her, and they had got the baking and washing all out of the way. 
She had even made each of the children a dough cake with a bit of brown sugar in it. I had them all piping hot when they came in from playing on the moor. And the cottage all smelt a nice, clean, hot bacon and there was a good fire. And they just shouted for joy. Our Dickens said our cottage was good enough for a king. In the evening, they had all sat around the fire, and Martha and her mother had sewn patches on torn clothes and mended stockings, and Martha had told them about the little girl who had come from India and had been waited on all her life by what Martha called blacks, until she didn't know how to put on her own stockings. Eh, they did like to hear about you, said Martha. They wanted to know all about the blacks and about the ship you came in. I couldn't tell them enough. Mary reflected a little. I'll tell you a great deal more before your next day out, she said, so that you will have more to talk about. I dare say they would like to hear about riding on elephants and camels and about the officers going to hunt tigers. My word, cried delighted Martha. It will set them clean off their heads. Would that really do that, miss? It would be same as a wild beast show like we heard they had in York once. India is quite different from Yorkshire, Mary said slowly, as she thought the matter over. I never thought of that. Did Dickon and your mother like to hear you talk about me? Why, our Dickon's eyes nearly started out of his head they got so round, answered Martha. But mother, she was put out about you seeming to be all by yourself like. She said, hasn't Mr. Craven got no governess for her, nor no nurse? And I said, no, he hasn't, though Mrs. Medlock says he will when he thinks of it, but she says he mayn't think of it for two to three years. I don't want a governess, said Mary sharply, but Mother says you ought to be learning your book by this time, and you ought to have a woman to look after you, she says. Now, Mother, you just think how you'd feel yourself in a big place like that, wandering about all alone, and no mother. You do your best to cheer her up, she says, and I said I would. Mary gave her a long, steady look. You do cheer me up, she said. I like to hear you talk. Presently, Martha went out of the room and came back with something held in her hands under her apron. What does thou think, she said with a cheerful grin. I've brought thee a present. A present? exclaimed Mistress Mary. How could a cottage full of fourteen hungry people give any one a present? A man was driving across the moor peddling, Martha explained, and he stopped his cart at our door. He had pots and pans and all the lens, but Mother had no money to buy anything. Just as he was going away, Aunt Elizabeth Ellen called out, Mother, he's got skipping ropes with red and blue handles. And Mother, she calls out quite sudden, Hey, stop, mister. How much are they? And he says, Toppence. And mother, she began fumbling in her pocket, and she says to me, Mother, thou's brought me thy wages like a good lass, and I've got four places to put every penny. But I'm just going to take toppence out of it to buy that child a skipping rope. And she bought one, and here it is. She brought it out from under her apron and exhibited it quite proudly. It was a strong, slender rope with a striped red and blue handle at each end. But Mary Lennox had never seen a skipping rope before. She gazed at it with a mystified expression. 
What is it for? she asked curiously. For? cried Aunt Martha. Does thou mean that thou not got skipping ropes in India? For they've all got elephants and tigers and camels. No wonder most of them's blacks. This is what it's for. Just watch me. And she ran into the middle of the room and, taking a handle in each hand, began to skip and skip and skip while Mary turned in her chair to stare at her and the clear faces in the old portrait seemed to stare at her too and wonder what on earth this common little cottager had the impudence to be doing under their very noses. But Martha did not even see them. The interest and curiosity in Mistress Mary's face delighted her, and she went on skipping and counted as she skipped until she had reached a hundred. I could skip longer than that, she whispered when she stopped. I've skipped as much as five hundred when I was twelve, but I wasn't as fat then as I am now, and I was in practice. Mary got up from her chair, beginning to feel excited herself. It looks nice, she said. Your mother is a kind woman. Do you think I could ever skip like that? You just try it, urged Martha, handing her the skipping rope. You can't skip a hundred at first, but if you practice, you'll mount up. That's what mother says. She says, nothing would do her more good than skipping rope. It's the sensiblest toy a child can have. Let her play with it out in the fresh air, skipping, and it'll stretch her legs and arms and give her some strength in them. It was plain that there was not a great deal of strength in Mistress Mary's arms and legs when she first began to skip. She was not very clever at it, but she liked it so much that she did not want to stop. Put on that things and run and skip out of doors, said Martha. Mother said I must tell you to keep out of doors as much as you could, even when it rains a bit, so as thou wrap up warm. Mary put on her coat and hat and took her skipping rope over her arm. She opened the door to go out and then suddenly thought of something and turned back rather slowly. Martha, she said, they were your wages. It was your two pence, really. Thank you. She said it stiffly because she was not used to thanking people or noticing that they did things for her. Thank you, she said, and held out her hand because she did not know what else to do. Martha gave her hand a clumsy little shake, as if she was not accustomed to this sort of thing either. Then she laughed. Hey, <laughs> that's a queer old womanish thing, she said. If that be now Elizabeth Ellen, that'd have given me a kiss. Mary looked stiffer than ever. Do you want me to kiss you? Martha laughed again. <laughs> Nay, nee, not me, she answered. If that was different, perhaps that want to thyself, but thou isn't. Run off outside and play with thy rope. Mistress Mary felt a little awkward as she went out to the room. Yorkshire people seemed strange, and Martha was always rather a puzzle to her. At first she disliked her very much, but now she did not. The skipping rope was a wonderful thing. She counted and skipped and skipped and counted until her cheeks were quite red and she was more interested than she had ever been since she was born. The sun was shining and a little wind was blowing. Not a rough wind, but one which came in delightful little gust and brought a fresh scent of newly turned earth with it. 
she skipped round the fountain garden and up one walk and down another. She skipped at last into the kitchen garden and saw Ben Weatherstaff digging and talking to his robin, which was hopping about him. She skipped down the walk toward him and he lifted his head and looked at her with a curious expression. She had wondered if he would notice her. She wanted him to see her skip. Well, he exclaimed, upon my word, perhaps thou a young un after all, and perhaps thou has got child bloods in thy veins instead of sour bottle milk. Thou skipped red in thy cheeks as sure as my name's Ben Weatherstaff. I wouldn't have believed thou could do it. I've never skipped before, Mary said. I'm just beginning. I can only go up to twenty. Thou keep on, said Ben. Thy ship's well enough at it for a young un that's lived with heathen. Just see how he's watching thee. Jerking his head toward the robin. He followed after thee yesterday. He'll be at it again today. He'll be bound to find out what the skipping rope is. He's never seen one. Eh. Shaking his head at the bird. Thy curiosity will be the death of thee sometime if thou doesn't look sharp. Mary skipped round all the gardens and round the orchard, resting every few minutes. At length, she went to her own special walk and made up her mind to try if she could skip the whole length of it. It was a good long skip, and she began slowly, but before she had gone halfway down the path, she was so hot and breathless that she was obliged to stop. She did not mind much, because she had already counted up to thirty. She stopped with a little laugh of pleasure, and there, lo and behold, was the robin swaying on a long branch of ivy. He had followed her, and he greeted her with a chirp. As Mary had skipped toward him, she felt something heavy in her pocket strike against her at each jump, and when she saw the robin, she laughed again. "'You showed me where the key was yesterday,' she said. "'You ought to show me the door today.' But I don't believe you know. The robin flew from his swinging spray of ivy on the top of the wall, and he opened his beak and sang a loud, lovely trill, merely to show off. Nothing in the world is quite as adorably lovely as a robin when he shows off, and they are nearly always doing it. Mary Lennox had heard a great deal about magic in her Arya stories, and she always said that what happened almost at that moment was magic. One of the nice little gusts of wind rushed down the walk, and it was a stronger one than the rest. It was strong enough to wave the branches of the trees, and it was more than strong enough to sway the trailing sprays of untrimmed ivy hanging from the wall. Mary had stepped close to the robin, and suddenly the gust of wind swung aside some loose ivy trails, and more suddenly still she jumped toward it and caught it in her hand. This she did because she had seen something under it, a round knob which had been covered by the leaves hanging over it. It was the knob of a door. She put her hands under the leaves and began to pull and push them aside. Thick as the ivy hung, it nearly all was a loose and swinging curtain, though some had crept over wood and iron. Mary's heart began to thump, and her hands to shake a little in her delight and excitement. The robin kept singing and twittering away and tilting his head on one side, as if he were as excited as she was. What was this under her hands which was square and made of iron, and which her fingers found a hole in? 
It was the lock of the door which had been closed ten years, and she put her hand in her pocket, drew out the key, and found it fitted the keyhole. She put the key in and turned it. It took two hands to do it, but it did turn. And then she took a long breath and looked behind her up the long walk to see if anyone was coming. No one was coming. No one ever did come, it seemed. And she took another long breath because she could not help it. And she held back the swinging curtain of ivy and pushed back the door, which opened slowly, slowly. Then she slipped through it and shut it behind her and stood with her back against it, looking about her and breathing quite fast with excitement and wonder and delight. She was standing inside the secret garden. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate everyone who listens and everyone who shares the podcast. Uh, yeah, tons of bonus content here. Be sure to check out Nikki's links. They're going to be in the show notes down below. Check out the other work that she is doing and send some love her way. Thank you so much uh, to Nikki again for just her generosity. I mean, she put so much time and effort into this and it's just, it's coming out great. So I hope you guys are enjoying it, enjoying all the bonus content. Uh, like I said, we'll be back on Sunday with our normally scheduled episode of Emma. So stay tuned for that. That. And yeah, in the meantime, enjoy all this awesomeness. Thanks for listening, guys. Remember to share the show with somebody that you know who might enjoy a free audiobook.